Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Trust the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, hello, dress listeners. Today, we are very excited to feature an exhibition that does something that you know we love to do on Dressed, and that is celebrating the work of badass ladies from throughout history and today. And that's right, because today we are welcoming the Peabody Essex Museum's fashion and textile curator, Petra Slinkard, to the show to discuss the exhibition, Made It, The Women Who Revolutionized Fashion. And as the museum's website says... Through more than 100 works, Made It celebrates the stories of women who revolutionized many aspects of the fashion industry and traces how these efforts parallel the history of women's global struggle for equity and opportunity. And the exhibition is actually a collaboration between PEM and the Kunstmuseum Den Haag in the Netherlands. And it features clothing from both of these museums' collections, as well as from private and public collections. And so from every designer from Elizabeth Keckley to Lady Lucille Duff Gordon to Madeleine Vionnet to Bonnie Cash and Anne Lowe, Mary Quant, and then all the way up to more <laughs> contemporary designers like Ray Kawakubo, uh, Iris Van Herpen, Jamie Akuma, you do not want to miss this exhibition. It actually just opened and it's on view until March 2021. Yes, and alas, we will not be able to make it to Salem, Massachusetts in person this year, especially right now. So what better way to celebrate this exhibition than by being joined by its co-curator, Petra. Welcome to the show. Petra, welcome to Dressed. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you. I'm excited to be with you. So you are here to discuss the Peabody Essex Museum's latest exhibition, The Women Who Revolutionized Fashion, 250 Years of Design. As the title suggests, this is not by any means a small topic. (laughs) Can you tell us about the exhibit and a little bit about the inspiration behind its creation? Sure, absolutely. Um, So this exhibition actually is a partnership that we did, um, or we're doing, I should say, uh, with the Kunstmuseum in Den Haag in the Netherlands. Um, And it is an extension of a show that they put on um, called Femme Fatales, Strong Women in Fashion. And their show then traveled to Belgium, and we are essentially kind of the third venue. But it's it's an interesting collaboration because it's not um, an identical rehang of their show. 
So their installation, um, which was was beautiful and spanned multiple rooms and multiple galleries. And our show is going to be designed a little bit differently. Um, and part of the reason that we were very excited to partner with the Kunst Museum is that they are so accommodating um, and really great partners. They um, allowed us to borrow 60 objects from their collection, which was huge for us because, of course, as a European collection, they have really some phenomenal works that represent, you know, the big European designers, for which PEM just doesn't have that much representation. And But of course, being in the United States, we really wanted to draw out um, some additional stories that pertain to designers in the 21st century, but also American designers um, for whom there wasn't as much representation in their show. So we've been able to augment uh, with 25 works from our own collection, some of which are recent acquisitions. And um, we borrowed a few pieces from the MFA in Boston. We borrowed two pieces from the Chicago History Museum. And then we're working with uh, two private uh, collectors. So there are 108 mannequins in the show. It's a really big show. Wow. <laughs> and it does, you know, sort of run the gamut. It, um, you know, we say 250 years. It's not, of course, a comprehensive look, but it does span that time frame. And so why an exhibition dedicated to, I mean, this probably goes without saying, but what, what inspired you to do an exhibition dedicated just to women designers? Well, that's a great question. Um, it actually takes me back to my time in Chicago because I was working at the Chicago History Museum um, as the costume curator there. And of course, as a social history museum, we were definitely thinking about uh, 2020 as a hallmark year for the uh, 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And so even then, um, and this was back in 2017, um, my partner, Jessica Pushore and I were sort of already beginning to kind of comb the collection and, and look to see what we might do in honor of women, um, because the museum itself was looking to do a year of uh, women-based programming and exhibitions. My life changed because I, I moved to Salem, Massachusetts and became um, the fashion textile curator at the Peabody Essex Museum. And so I kind of put that idea to rest. Uh, until I was scrolling through Instagram one evening, saw Madalif um, Jorge, who's the curator at the Kunst Museum, post an image of a stack of books. And I noticed all the names on the books and they were all women designers. And she said something, you know, pithy, like coming soon and, you know, uh, strong women in fashion. And so I sent her a direct message and I just said, hey, tell me more. What do you, what is going on? You know, what are you doing? What are you planning? Um, and she told me about the show and I said, oh, well, that's really interesting. And I said, you know, have you ever worked with the U.S. institution before? And she said, no, we haven't. Um, and I said, well, would you be interested? And she said, yes. So I went and I saw the exhibition and I came back and I spoke with our colleagues here. And it just so happened that we had a hole in our schedule for 2020. And um, we hadn't really been thinking at that point about doing uh, anything dedicated to women. And so it all, all the pieces just sort of fell into place. Uh, we were slated to open in May, but of course, because of COVID, uh, that did not happen. Um, but again, because we have great partners, uh, they were very flexible and um, now we're opening November 21st. Fabulous. So one of the main arguments of the exhibition is that male fashion designers have long for too long, <laughs> overshadowed the work of their female counterparts, despite women having been central to clothing production for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. Can you tell us a little bit more about these kind of historic tug-of-wars pre-19th century, so pre-industrial revolution, 
Um, you do talk kind of open the book with an essay on that topic. Yeah, well, you know, I think, particularly in the United States, of course, um, you know, women were essential to working um, and sort of promoting the success of the textile industry, uh, particularly in New England. You know, the shoe industry in New England was essential to this area, um, and it was a it was a time and a place where women were starting to leave the home and really, you know, begin to work in a variety of jobs. But of course, as women, those, those jobs were still limited to a certain select uh, group of what, what, what might be deemed as appropriate or acceptable positions. And, you know, it's interesting. And then I think, you know, looking back to the 18th century in Europe and, you know, the, the tension I think that existed in the, the guild system where, you know, you have men who created the system and, you know, maintained it and monitored it and sort of dictated the way in which it was devised. And that, you know, of course, that really focused on the idea of the fabrics being the most expensive or the textiles being the most expensive component of an ensemble. And that, you know, women, um, you know, whether it was uh, due to the fact that their fingers were smaller or dexterity or truly that it was a a sort of a lowlier um, job to piece and sew uh, the ensembles together, you know, that they, they were relegated to this sphere. And I think as women they banded together and they became more um, skilled in this particular craft. You know, they started to say to themselves and to, to one another, you know, we deserve more. We deserve more space here. We deserve more um, visibility. And, you know, why should we be relegated to this one component of this industry? And, you know, then you have this interesting synergy with how the fashion industry is is evolving in and of itself. And, you know, it's picking up steam as we move into the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, there's lots of opportunity, um, which I think people are, are harnessing, but it's still a business. And I think traditionally for so long, you know, business, again, the thought stereotypically was that, you know, that's a man's world, right? That men control the purse strings, men control the system um, for business and, you know, everything from martini lunches to, you know, um, having a foreman in a, in a factory, but that there's this oversight and, you know, the, this exhibition, you know, subtly and sometimes not so subtly is really about those points where women start to break through that status quo. Right. And really carve places for themselves in these male-dominated industries. It's so interesting. And, and one of the uh, essays in the exhibition catalog talks about kind of that tug and pull between the male, as you mentioned, the male-dominated guilds of tailors, for instance. And in the 17th and 18th century, male tailors exclusively had the right to build very specific women's garments. And it wasn't until, I think, the 18th century that women created their own guilds, women dressmaking guilds. So it's really interesting to learn about those women that we don't always think about um, historically. But they were there, and they were doing a lot of (laughs) pretty wonderful things. Absolutely. Well, and that's one of the things that really attracted me to the story too, is because for every name that we know, whether they're well known or not, you know, there are hundreds of people that contributed to the success of this industry 
to innovative techniques. And we don't know their names. We, we will never see their faces. Um, and so I think in a way, this exhibition was an opportunity to call attention you know, to some of those influences and the impact that um, you know, people, but in this case, specifically women, have made over the years. Right. And that actually leads perfectly into my next question, because we are, of course, going to talk about all of the wonderful revolutionary women fashion designers that populate your exhibition. But I would love if we could talk a little bit more about some of the American fashion industry's unsung or little known women trailblazers. And you write about them so poignantly in an essay in an introductory chapter of the exhibition catalog called At the Cutting Edge, American Fashion as Catalyst for Change. Women whom you write used fashion as a, quote, potent symbol of self-actualization and change. Please tell us more. (laughs) You know, it's so funny because everything about this exhibition, there's a... There is a uh, sort of a 10,000 square foot perspective. And then there's the, you know, six foot perspective. Um, (laughs) And I love that. But I think, you know, in regard to that particular statement, you know, one individual that I might call um, out uh, who is beloved and probably better known than some of, um, you know, some of the other individuals in this uh, show, but that is, you know, of Bonnie Cashin. And, you know, I think that Bonnie, of course, through Dr. Stephanie Lake's research and publication has started to um, become more of a household name. But if you really start to think about and break down all of the innovations that she put forward, whether it's, you know, the use of materials, the, you know, the kinds of hardware that she employed in her clothing, but even to the way in which she did business, you know, the fact that she never licensed her name. um, To me, that is a symbol of self-actualization. You know, here is someone who was unwilling to compromise um, for the sake of success, for the sake of, of business or for monetary gain, but really, you know, in spite of that, still carved out a place for herself, um, you know, as a, as an American um, pioneer, I think in particularly in the mid century, but, you know, looking at individuals like Eleanor Lambert or Dorothy Shaver um, with Lord and Taylor, you know, that was another area in which for me, uh, I think that retail is an area in which particularly in fashion history and in exhibitions, we haven't fully delved into how rich those stories are. And, you know, that could be a whole different exhibition on its own. Um, But, you know, the the notion of you having like the little shop girl, right, that women, again, were relegated to the floor, you know, and that was really the only place that they they had space to earn an income. Um, And then you would, again, have these trailblazers who sort of bust through. And, you know, and and for Dorothy, it's not only, of course, was she a, a major success and promoting American fashion designers, but the fact that she was also a very early proponent of, you know, longer maternity leaves and, you know, thinking about, you know, supporting women in in that way too. Um, You know, again, I think to me is a, it points to a level of self-actualization and, you know, these, these moments that even at the time, perhaps, seemed insignificant. Looking back, you're able to see how significant and how impactful um, and ahead of the time, you know, they really were. Yeah. And Dorothy Shaver, who was um, one of the head executives at Lord & Taylor department store, I think as early as the 20s and 30s is when she did like her really famous American fashion designer campaigns. 
I really like that you said that about, you know, maternity leave, et cetera, because what's so great about many of these women in this exhibition is that they're influencing beyond the fashion industry. You know, they're working for labor reform, women's rights. You write so wonderfully about these um, women strikers and labor reform movements and how women within the fashion industry were really catalysts of change for themselves, um, you know, throughout the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. So I, I love that as a thread of the exhibition. Um, of course, you mentioned Eleanor Lambert, many, who's many accolades. I mean, she's the founder of <laughs> New York Fashion Week, founder of CFDA. You also write about Eunice Johnson, who was the founder of the Ebony Fashion Fair. I mean, there's so many women, so little time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. But I mean, Eunice is a great example, right? I mean, here's someone who, you know, was looking to use fashion as a means to um, connect communities, to elevate her peers. And, you know, obviously there was also a business angle, which was brilliant, um, but wasn't going to take no as an answer, you know, and that's probably one of my favorite components of her story was that if people were unwilling to lend clothing to her, she was just kind of like, all right, cool, I'll buy it, you know, and, but that's huge to me, you know, to me, that is so indicative of someone who knows exactly what they want and is willing to go to great lengths to succeed. Yeah. And the fact that she is, was inserting herself in like this white dominated haute couture industry of the 50s and 60s as she's a black woman going to Europe to buy haute couture was incredibly groundbreaking during that period. And then the fact that she's exhibiting it on black bodies across America. I mean, yeah, we did a whole a whole episode on her <laughs> um, last season. So our listeners could definitely check that out more if they want to learn oh, more. Wonderful. Yeah. So one of the arguments of the exhibition, as I already mentioned, is that fashion history has for too long been dominated by the narratives of male fashion designers. And this includes people like the founding father of haute couture, Charles Frederick Worth, <laughs> Paul Poiret. Then, of course, we have Christian Dior, Balenciaga, Yves Saint Laurent, the list goes on, right? One of these overshadowed women was the African-American designer Elizabeth Keckley, who we've also done an episode about. Um, but she was the personal dressmaker of for Mary Todd Lincoln and just an incredible, incredible story. Former enslaved woman turned premier dressmaker in Washington, D.C. in the Civil War era. I mean, you can't get more groundbreaking than that. Her work is the first... I believe, garment in the exhibition. It's definitely the first in the exhibition catalog. Can you tell us a little bit more about this incredible woman and why she holds this pride of place in the exhibition? Sure. Um, Well, so for me, you know, I think, again, this is a sort of a twofold rationale. But you mentioned Charles Frederick Worth. And, you know, I think any fashion historian, student, fashion enthusiast is going to know Charles Frederick Worth. And, you know, no disrespect to his successes and his influence, um, which is enormous, of course. But, you know, to think about how he was designing for European courts and, you know, really making this significant headway in creating a name for himself. And, you know, that in every fashion history book written, he is touted as the father of haute couture the same time in the United States, you have a Black woman who is formerly enslaved who used her skills as a dressmaker to purchase her freedom and that of her sons. Um, and then to parlay that 
that skill set into an independent business where then she was designing, you know, for the highest court of our nation. And yet her name has not been touted with the same fanfare as his. And I understand that the aesthetic of a Charles Frederick Worth gown is different than that of a, a gown designed by Elizabeth Keckley. However, that also speaks to the way in which um, individuals, of course, were dressing in the preferred aesthetic in Europe versus the United States. And so she was meeting a need and designing you know, specifically for our first lady. And, you know, to me, I think, you know, her story is very powerful, but it is also so firmly rooted in um, multiple components of U.S. history you know, not only as a, a strong independent woman who, you know, essentially was a single mother and also, you know, thinking about the way in which we as a nation, particularly in the 1860s, you know, were looking at race and, you know, thinking about the atrocities associated with uh, generations of enslaved people and how significant it is that she was able to get the support of people outside of her family who enabled her with the, you know, extra commissions, you know, to, to purchase her freedom. Um, and that it wasn't enough for her to just be free, you know, that she then went on to make a name for herself and to become a preferred dressmaker, not only for Mary Todd Lincoln, but for a variety of Washington's elite. Um, and I think that that's a tremendous and an incredible story. Oh, absolutely. Widely sought after and venerated designer of her day, which is just incredible. And she actually wrote a memoir, Dress Listeners, that you can read. It's actually pretty quick and easy. Well, it's not an easy read by any means um, because she discusses her experiences during slavery. But she also tells this incredible story of her trajectory into the Washington, D.C. echelons of the Lincolns. So I highly, highly recommend checking that out. And we're going to hear about more trailblazing women fashion designers after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back, dress listeners. So, Petra, I would like to continue on the exhibition's theme of highlighting and celebrating women who have not received adequate attention or praise, well-deserved praise for their work. For instance, many of us have heard of the Spanish designer Mariano Fortuny. Famous for his pleated Delphos gowns, as well as his luscious stenciled velvet textiles from the early 20th century. But I'm really curious how many of our listeners have heard of his Italian contemporary, Maria Monaci Galenga. Please introduce us to her and the stunning piece chosen to represent her work in the exhibition. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring up Fortuny, uh, because I also would like to just give a moment of recognition to his wife, um, right. who, you know, as a design partner, uh, has been also essential to the success of his work, um, although she has rarely received the credit uh, that is due to her. But of course, this contemporary Galenga, who you mentioned, you know, is a, an Italian woman who opened her own studio in 1914. Um, and the, play, uh, the piece that we have on view in our exhibition uh, is actually on loan to us from a local collector by the name of Jimmy Ray. And um, Jimmy has one of the best collections of fashion I have ever seen. 
And so when I had an opportunity to visit his house and ask him about, you know, the show and, and tell him what we were thinking, you know, he just started opening boxes left and right. And, wow. you know, one of the pieces that was, uh, that is in his collection um, that he offered us to look at was this gorgeous uh, Galenga, which you can see in the catalog. That is the piece. What's interesting about Galenga is that, of course, she was a contemporary of Fortunia and also the House of Avani. But again, as an artist, in particular as a, as a female artist, um, you know, I, I really appreciate the fact that she produced her clothing using, um, you know, this, this technique for printing on fabric, but that she also would sign her work. And again, to me, that really uh, symbolizes not only the view that she had of her pieces, that she did value them as artwork, but that there's also this deep sense of ownership over that work. And I think, you know, in a way, uh, you know, this really helped her stand out, um, I think, among her peers. Um, but that the clothing itself, you know, was really um, sort of leading us into is a, a sort of a precursor into what we then see with the flapper style of the 1920s, where you have this, you know, this loosening, you know, columnar silhouette. Um, it is definitely a, a style that was, I think, appreciated by the intelligentsia of, of, of Europe. Um, but that she herself also then went to Paris and opened a studio where she was in the 1920s, you know, promoting the work of her Italian contemporaries, um, you know, through this outlet. So, you know, again, she has a, this multi-layered story where, you know, she's an artist, she's a fashion designer, she's a textile designer. And then she's also, you know, working as a businesswoman uh, as well to elevate and support, you know, her countrymen. Yeah, and I mean, I, I wonder if it's safe to say as, as well that so many of these fashion designers featured in this exhibition really deserve their own research dedicated just to uncovering their stories and their legacies more. I mean, there's certainly, um, I don't know how many surviving Galinga garments there are, but she certainly deserves her own exhibition. Such a wonderful body of work, such an incredible career, and we would love to learn more. <laughs> We do not have that problem about uh, Miss Gabrielle Coco Chanel, however. <laughs> no, we do not. Fashion history certainly has its share of famous fashion revolutionaries, none more so than Gabrielle Coco Chanel. But there are countless other lesser known designers with whom she shared the stage and, you know, during her time. Can you speak to the work of some of her contemporaries, but also those who laid the foundations on which her success was built? And I will preface this by saying that our listeners should be familiar by now with the work of, you know, Lady Lucille Duff Gordon, Jeanne Paquin, Jeanne Lanvin, Madeleine Vionnet. We featured all of them on our show at one point or another, and they're all in this exhibition because of, of how, you know, groundbreaking their work is and, and the work that they put into developing modern fashion for modern women. But for instance, I'd never heard of Jeanne Adele Bernard Sack, who's in the exhibition, or the Dutch designer Mies van Oost. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of these lesser known designers from this time? So uh, the first designer, um, Jean Adele, is founded the House of Jenny in um, Paris oh. and Jenny, J-E-N-N-Y, with her partner, uh, Marie. And, you know, it's interesting because she served as the 
creative director, whereas Marie um, Mecora was basically the one who managed the team of seamstresses. And, um, you know, we were personally thrilled to be able to include um, a work of Jenny because uh, it's from our own collection. It's from the PBI Essex Museum collection. And, you know, you're very right to point her out as a lesser known designer because there's not as much research available um, to uh, uh, on this particular house um, as maybe we would like for there to be. But one thing that, you know, we started to, to notice our design, our research team, um, which includes Paula Richter and Lon Morgan, was that there is a kind of an, a disproportionate amount of Jenny designs in the United States. Um, and so we started to, to think about how the House of Jenny created their garments for, you know, this, this perfect clientele, which was, of course, a very active, invigorated and liberated, um, you know, 1920s uh, youth set. And that, you know, once the, 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 the sort of the, the classic flapper um, era time period has had moved on that you start to see Jenny fall out of favor. So it was almost like in a way you know, the, the house experienced a great uh, amount of success in a very short period of time. And so as a result, um, you know, there aren't that many um, extant uh, pieces available, but I would say that having seen her work in person um, and knowing that we're going to display it next to a Chanel from the 1920s as well, you know, the, the workmanship and the selection of fabrics are absolutely on par with one another. And, and I think that they're going to serve as really great companion pieces uh, for people to better understand, um, you know, why she is included in the show. I wish I could see this exhibition so bad. Um, listeners, you're just going to have to join me in getting the exhibition catalog and living vicariously through its images because they're just incredible. And then, of course, if you can make it to Salem, Massachusetts, I know that you will. So like Chanel, many of our listeners are familiar with the surrealist creations of her Italian contemporary, Elsa Scaparelli, her reported rival, but are perhaps less familiar with their American counterparts. You mentioned Bonnie Cashin earlier. Can you highlight a few more of these designers that are featured in the exhibition? And how did these women contribute to the creation of a name and an international name for American fashion designers outside the shadows of Paris? I mean, they're creating fashion at a time when Paris really is the end-all be-all of fashion design um, in, Mer- in America, across Europe. How did these women change that? Um, great question. And actually, I just realized that I didn't answer your question about Mies van Oss. Um, and so very briefly, I'll just say that, again, another designer working in the 1920s. But what I find to be so interesting about um, Mies, she's a Dutch designer. She was independent, but that she was trained as a weaver. So the two pieces that we have in the show, in my opinion, are actually quite rare examples of 1920s day wear. Whereas, you know, typically we, we think of 1920s clothing as... Uh, you know, the sort of the classic beaded um, evening wear. Right. <laughs> um, so it's great to be able to showcase uh, something that is is day wear. But going to the American designers uh, of the, the mid 20th century, I mean, the, the works that we have on view in our exhibition really begin with Elizabeth Hawes, who I'm sure your listeners are, are familiar with. But, you know, Elizabeth is, <laughs> I wish that I could have met her in person. Don't <laughs> we just put all. It that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we have a, um, from there, we have a, a nice selection 
of Pauline Trugere and Bonnie Cashin and Claire McArdle. Um, we have an example of Tina Lisa and Adele Simpson. Um, and then we also have an example of Anne Lowe, um, which is on loan to us from the Chicago History Museum. And, you know, this really forms the selection of what we're sort of referring to as our American look section. So collectively, you know, these women are trailblazers. They are definitely pioneers in American sportswear. Thinking about the way in which they emerged uh, in contrast to their Parisian counterparts, um, you know, I think it, it, at the time when, from 1947, you have the Christian Dior's and the Balenciagas, you know, uh, designing beautiful garments. I mean, there's no argument there, but designing in a very different way, right? That was very structured and very rigid, and in a way, you know, the clothes are are the central point, you know, the woman almost comes secondary. The woman right. is, the, is the structure, right? Or the infrastructure. Um, whereas the female American counterparts are really thinking about comfort and beauty and functionality, but also the shift in women's roles, you know, everything from being more active as a homemaker to, you know, walking the streets of New York or Chicago um, or California and, you know, engaging in um, commerce in a different way and what kinds of clothes would be a good parallel for these independent, active businesswomen. Yeah, and exactly. And collectively, these women are really creating what will eventually become, especially actually, we should say during World War II, because American fashion is kind of put on the map in a way that it never was prior to that. Because during World War II, unlike World War I, America is cut off from Paris fashion. Paris is occupied by the Nazis, and they're just not getting that type of information. So a lot of these American fashion designers, um, you know, this is kind of the creation of American fa New York Fashion Week happens during this period. So kind of collectively, these women start to um, represent what will become American fashion design and in America and then internationally as well in the ensuing decades. Uh, we are going to hear more about wonderful women fashion designers after a brief sponsor break. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? 
because you can by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, dress listeners. Up to this point, Petra, we have discussed European and American fashion designers, but this exhibition provides really a global offering of international talent, and that includes the Japanese designer Hanai Mori, who opened her first Tokyo boutique in 1951. Please tell us more about her work and the garment you selected to be featured in the exhibition. So I have long been a fan of um, Moray's work. And, you know, I think that in museums, typically we tend to know her work by her caftans. Um, she uses the butterfly as an iconic symbol um, throughout her work. So when she, when she first debuted her first collection, which was titled East Meets West in 1965, she, of course, was, you know, using her background as a Japanese person, um, but also an individual who engaged with Japanese design and was inspired, in fact, by meeting um, Gabrielle Chanel to then, you know, come to the United States and um, showcase this collection that truly was, you know, in her own uh, words, this East Meets West collection. Um, so this particular state that we have on view is from 1993. Um, and it's really interesting to me because it's made of traditional obi fabric. And so the, the textile is sumptuous. It has beautiful gold metallic thread. The um, design of the obi um, uses the chrysanthemum. And yet the suit itself is a very kind of classic skirt suit from the early 1990s. And so not only, again, does it, does it, for me, represent this balance between, you know, a Japanese and Asian aesthetic and the idea of what a woman might wear as someone who is a, a global citizen, and then also is, is indicative of 1990s style. Um, you know, so, so in the show, you know, we say we're covering 250 years, but of course there are definitely pockets of fashion history that 
are more populated in the exhibition. So the 1920s, the 1930s, certainly being um, two of them. And so to have examples from the late 20th century that don't just uh, represent stereotypical 1980s fashion, um, I thought was pretty special. Uh, and so that's why, and it also speaks to the, the range and the longevity of her career. Yeah, she's still alive. She's 94. And I mean, perhaps deserves her own podcast episode, obviously. <laughs> her career so. started in the 40s and 50s. I mean, what an incredible, incredible career. It's always so fascinating to see designers whose careers cover all those decades too, because just the sheer change in fashion over those years is just incredible. And you really get to take that journey with them. As the exhibition is organized chronologically, there are a lot of designs included by designers who we just mentioned who are still enjoying these incredibly successful careers, many, many decades in the making. You have, of course, Ray Kawakubo, who founded Comme des Garçons in 1969, which I don't think a lot of people realize how old that brand is. Mm-hmm. And Diane von Furstenberg, who's still selling her now iconic wrap dress that was first created in 1974. So, you know. Um, <laughs> and then you have designers all the way up to Iris Van Herpen, Stella McCartney, one of my personal favorites featured in the exhibition, however, is the indigenous designer and beadwork artist, Jamie Akuma, who I absolutely, I just, I'm such a big fan. Can you introduce us to this incredible designer and that stunning orange dress, which is featured in the exhibition? So, you know, I am also thrilled to get an opportunity to showcase Jamie's work. Jamie uh, was introduced to me as I think she was, um, uh, to um, some of our colleagues as well through my colleague Karen Kramer's exhibition entitled Native Fashion Now. She and Jamie um, have worked together now many years. And I think when Karen first saw uh, Jamie's work, she was quite taken with it. And the um, Louboutin boots, uh, knee-high boots that are featured in the catalog are in PEMS collection. That was a, an acquisition made by Karen Kramer and those boots traveled in the Native Fashion Now exhibition. And so when it came time um, to think about who we wanted to include in our exhibition, um, this exhibition, um, The Women Who Revolutionized Fashion, uh, I reached out to my colleagues at PEM to say, you know, who, who's on your radar? Who do you think, you know, we should include? And it came around the time that Jamie had just debuted her 2018 collection um, and Karen had seen it in person. And, um, you know, it was, it was fantastic because it, it's really um, in this particular work, in that particular collection, it was about um, sustainability. And, you know, I think that it served two purposes. You know, it allowed us an opportunity to um, showcase uh, this talented designer's work again in a different um, way and to showcase her, the range of her talent in a different way. But it also spoke to... Um, a component, a theme in the exhibition that pertains to the idea that design is a catalyst for change. Um, and that for some people, uh, for instance, like Natalie Channon um, or Tracy Reese, it's about, you know, who you're working with and how you're uplifting, you know, the people that you employ. Whereas, you know, with Jamie, it is also that. And then, you know, her working in this particular collection, the dress that's on view is designed in, in a no-waste fashion. So essentially using the entire um, length of fabric from selvage to selvage. And if you look closely at the design of the gown, um, you'll notice that it is essentially a variety of squares 
that are beautifully pieced together to create uh, that finish and those edges um, that are very geometric, but of course also organic um, as she's created this floor length gown. The final section of the show includes Jamie Akuma, um, Iris Van Erpen, uh, Mary Catronzo, Natalie Channon for Alabama Channon and Tracy Reese. And to me, you know, this was the way in which we finish the exhibition as a look at who's taking us forward. You know, we, we spent all this time looking at the designers over the last 250 years. And now this was an opportunity for us to, to pause and give credit to the designers who are working currently and how they, you know, are, are impacting our industry as we continue to move forward. And I especially love that you include Jamie too, because I think it really shines a light on how many incredible Indigenous designers. Jamie's, of course, one of many, many Indigenous designers. Um, We just did an interview earlier this month with Vogue's Christian Allaire, who's like changing Vogue by bringing all attention to all of this Indigenous talent. So, I mean, I think the future in fashion in so many ways is is not white Eurocentric American fashion. It's all of these incredible artists already doing all of this wonderful work. And Jamie is just one of my favorites. Those boots you mentioned are entirely hand-beaded Louboutins. She's an incredible beadwork artist. Uh, I can't say enough wonderful things about her work. Um, So I was thrilled to see it included here. So we've covered a huge time span and a very short period. (laughs) Are there any other designers that you'd like to discuss or or kind of mention before we move on? Because I know, you know, that's a lot. No, I think, um, you know, you definitely hit uh, a couple of some some really powerhouses. Um, You know, there I said there are 108 mannequins in the show. There are essentially 75 individual designers or fashion houses um, featured. And so, again, in no way is it a comprehensive telling. Um, You know, I can say right off the bat that um, Anne Klein is not in the show. Liz Claiborne is not in the show. Jill Saunders <laughs> is not in the show. Um, you know, and those are clearly individuals who I would have loved to have included. Um, but of course, we're always limited by, you know, money and space and time space, and yeah. all of those things. But I do think that, you know, they're in good company um, as far as, you know, the women that are included. And, you know, I think it's also, uh, you know, a point to be made is that anytime you're talking about, gender as a as it pertains to a, a topic of study um you know it's, it's a sensitive topic it's a complex topic um and certainly you know we we understand that this is as i said not a comprehensive show but it's certainly also not a comprehensive telling um of what it means to be you know a person who identifies as female working in the industry um this was just one lens for which we could, you know, look at this particular topic. Absolutely. And again, so many more exhibitions to be <laughs> to be yes. made just, you know, using this exhibition as a catalyst to really inspire hopefully future incarnations of all of these different topics that you you can really only cover briefly. Um, but, you know, job well done. Congratulations. It's absolutely incredible. Thank you. Thanks. So hopefully when COVID restrictions uh, subside or, you know, we get to back to a, a, some kind of semblance of normal, um, I invite everyone to Salem 
to see the exhibition, of course, which is on view through March 14. But in addition, you know, we do have a, a new fashion and design gallery that opened in last September, which is a permanent installation um, where we have examples from our own collection on view there as well. Um, and we are looking to do a rotation soon where we're hoping to include works by other female designers that didn't make it into the exhibition. So it's kind of a nice companion. Oh, well, very much looking for it. Like I said, dress listeners, if you can get to Salem, I mean, I that's amazing. Or if you live in Salem, you probably already are going to check it out. Um, but like I said, get the exhibition catalog because it's just it's just an incredible feat of scholarship and just an incredible survey of these enterprising revolutionary women. But in closing, I before you go, I would just love to hear your thoughts on a very recent discussion about decolonizing museum fashion collections. Uh, Vanessa Friedman penned an article for the New York Times about the whiteness of fashion museums. It's a very, very active conversation happening right now. Um, You know, just about this idea that fashion collections, as many museums have long centered white European American designers, with fashion museum curators such as the Met's Andrew Bolton acknowledging that museums need to work harder to include a more diverse cast of designers and to include representations also of fashion outside the Euro-American fashion system because its fashion systems exist all over the world. It's clear that you worked really hard to include a diverse range of fashion innovators and designers in this exhibition, but I would just love to hear your thoughts on what work there still is to be done and what you see as the future of fashion museum collections. Well, there's a lot of work still to be done. Um, <laughs> there's no doubt about that. You know, and I think it's a two it's a twofold answer. Um, you know, certainly the way in which we collect moving forward, I think needs to change. Um, you know, and that ranges from what works we're actively seeking for our collections, whether that's through auction or through gift donation or acquisition. But also being more present in our communities and, you know, in thinking about presenting fashion from a a Euro-American centric perspective, you know, I think a lot of what feeds that is this idea of high fashion versus low fashion. Um, You know, it kind of takes us back to that conversation that we had previously about Charles Frederick Worth and Elizabeth Keckley. You know, Charles Frederick Worth, again, father of haute couture, and, you know, his pieces, of course, are sumptuous and beautiful and well-constructed. And so, therefore, we assign a quality of sophistication and prestige and elegance you know, and that that becomes the model mm-hmm. for which we then evaluate other clothing design or accessory design. And I think that that's step number one is altering our view of how we place value on the significance that objects hold. That, you know, in looking at our own collections, you know, PEMS collection is about 50,000 works. Um, you know, other collections across the country have tremendous resources at their disposal. But I think it's where we've paid our attention. How are we cataloging those pieces? You know, how are we conducting the research to bring the stories to the fore of the people who wore them or the people who sold them? or the people, you know, who marketed them, um, or, you know, the ways in which they were written about. Um, you know, I think that the relationship between model and designer is also a very um, rich one for exploration. Um, I had the fortune 
to uh, participate in a program with Marcellus Reynolds, who I think you yes. also had on the show. <laughs> um, you know, but those are ways in which we can just begin to start to dissect and reevaluate the way that we study fashion history and, you know, to make it a priority moving forward. It's no longer just happenstance, nor should it be. It should be an active priority on behalf of individuals who are charged with caring for these collections, but also for providing moments of intersection for community, you know, education and, um, you know, looking at art and culture together, you know, not just exalting an object for simply its beauty, but rather looking at how did those materials come to be? Who was charged with bringing them for making them? Um, and, you know, looking more holistically, you know, at the, the creation and the distribution of these works. Right. And it's it's so interesting, too, because museums for so long have played a really instrumental and crucial role in shaping and framing the narrative around history. And and because of museums are public institutions, who how the public interacts with that history. I mean, museums really do have a quite a powerful role. So to see them actively work moving forward to reshift, decenter, you know, reshift the narrative, reframe the narrative center white Eurocentric narratives and uh, museum collecting practices, um, I think is something that needs to happen and that we will see, like you said, moving forward. I absolutely think we will. And, and reframing what even fashion means, like you just said, we largely associate fashion with high fashion. For a lot of people, there is no other fashion. And that's just simply not true. It's just that that is the common traditional narrative that's been told. So I'm really excited moving forward. I think we've got a lot of good conversations happening. I really appreciate you taking the time to answer that question and to be with me here today. Congratulations on a beautiful exhibition and thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm happy to spend this time with you. And um, thanks for everyone who's listening. I really appreciate you spending time with us as well. Petra, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, as you know, it's gift giving season. So whether you gift it or whether you get it, um, we highly recommend getting your hands on a copy of this exhibition catalog. And the catalog has a slightly different title than the exhibition. Um, the, the title of the catalog is The Women Who Revolutionized Fashion, 250 Years of Design. And if you even want more details on some of the designers featured in the show and in the catalog, we want to direct you to a few of our episodes because we've done a lot of episodes on what some of the women featured in this exhibition. Elizabeth Keckley, for instance, was the subject of one of our very, very first episodes, as were Lady Lucille Duff Gordon, Jean Paquin, Jean Levin, and Madeleine Vianney, who are all we all covered in our Birth of the Modern episode. And we've also done episodes on Scaparelli, Valentina, Elizabeth Haas, and Tina Leesers. So if you want to do a deep dive, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and, and please, after reading the catalog or visiting the exhibition, let us know which of the designers you would like for us to feature on upcoming episodes. I can already tell you that we have one coming up on Bonnie Cashin. We're hoping to do one on Anne Lowe in season four. But but honestly, each and every one of these ladies could have their very own podcast episode that, that you guys discussed. So I think that does it for us today, Dress Listeners. May you consider the legacy of these revolutionary women designers in your clothing next time you get dressed. 
Remember to tune in this Thursday for a fashion history mini-sode. And if you have a moment, please take the time to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever else you stream our show. And of course, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. You can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartVideo that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.